Coastal Publishing, The Going Coastal Cast, and Christopher Chapman present Incarceration, the serialized weekly podcast performed by the author, Christopher Chapman. For more information, visit www.goingpostpublishing.com or email him at goingpostpublishing at gmail.com. This podcast is not suitable for children. It has violence, gore, and lots and lots of naughty words. If you can't handle that, go somewhere else. And now, on with the story, or whatever other crap I decide to come up with. Welcome to episode 5 of Incarceration. Hello boys and girls, and children of all ages that shouldn't be even listening to this because of the language. This is Christopher Chapman the host of the Going Postal Cast, and it is already episode 5 of Incarceration. We are just moving right along. Today we're going to be listening to chapters 9 and 10 of Incarceration, so yay, that'll be fun. But before we get started with that, I want to give you a few updates on everything that has been going on. NaNoWriMo is coming up. That starts on November 1st, the day after Halloween, so this coming Thursday... And I will be participating unofficially. I'm going to be writing a new novel in November. I will not finish it in November. I'm fully expecting to have that done sometime around Christmas. I'm shooting to have it done before Christmas. As I mentioned before, it is my first venture into fantasy novels. So I've already got pretty much the first couple of chapters mapped out in my mind. This is something I haven't really talked about before, but there's a lot of different processes that go into how a writer goes about his writing. Some people spend a lot of time going over every minute detail and just jotting it down, planning it out, basically just completely writing an outline for the whole book. I actually don't do that. I pretty much spend my entire days mapping out these novels in my head. I pretty much know what's going to happen before I sit down to write them to a point. But I will sit there and basically write out the whole novel and see how it goes. When I wrote the second Death Has Come book, the sequel to Incarceration, which I did last year, I pretty much had an idea of how it was going to start, and how it was going to end. And I was writing, and I bet you I was about halfway through, and then I suddenly got to the spot and something dramatic happened. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. It shocked me. It surprised me. And that was actually really good. And I decided to go with that. I went with that as far as the story went. So it kind of changed how the end of the book was going to be or how the end of the second book was going to go. But it worked out so well for the actual story. It made the story better because it surprised me. And it's going to surprise you whenever we get to the second book in the Death Has Come series. Other things going on this week. I have been working on the audiobook. I am almost done with it. And just a little bit more to go. And it will be done. So that's going to be great to finally have that done and available Hopefully I'll be able to get that up on iTunes right away. If not, it'll always be available on the website. 
I'm still shooting for the first week of November on that. I'm trying to get it done before Halloween, but I have a few projects I have to work on right before Halloween here. I'm actually recording this on the 25th, this little portion here. So I have a lot to do this weekend, and you're actually going to probably find out about it sometime next week or sometime this week now that you're hearing it. Now I want to talk about something that was asked to me in an email. I got an email that asked about the little guy. And this actually isn't the first email I got about it. I've actually gotten about three about it. This The guy in the going postal publishing artwork. There's the guy with the buck teeth, the big ears, wearing the postal uniform, and that has the big machine gun. Where did I come up with that guy? Did I draw him? Yes, I drew him. I designed him. He's actually a character that I've had around for about 20 years now. When I was in high school, actually when I was in middle school, I think is when I created him, there was a kid in my school, kind of a, you know, really uh, not the greatest person in the world. He was always a thorn in my side. Here's a kid that, one, I got to tell this story. When I was in middle school, I was sitting between this kid, who will remain nameless, and my friend Ben. This kid gets up to go to the bathroom, and my friend Ben says, give me his grilled cheese sandwich. And I said, no, I wasn't going to give him that grilled cheese sandwich. Well, he says, well, I'm taking it anyway. So he reaches over, and he grabs that grilled cheese sandwich. So he starts eating it, and he's enjoying it. Well, the kid comes back and says, you ate my grilled cheese sandwich. And me being honest, I said, no, I did not eat your grilled cheese sandwich. He instantly became very angry with me and proceeded to punch me in the back of the head. He wasn't that strong, so it didn't really hurt that much. And I said, knock it off. He hit me again, this time in the side of the head. And I said, this is your last chance. Do not do that again. I did not eat your grilled cheese sandwich. He hit me again. And I got extremely angry. So he kind of came towards me a little bit. I stood up and I basically, it wasn't really a wrestling movement. It kind of resembled a choke slam. I kind of grabbed him by the throat and kind of flung him down. I went back to eating. Well, he got angry and decided to dump his entire tomato soup all over my tray. So I got up and I punched him. And kind of, he laid there for a while. So anyway, to make a long story short, that is not the only little issue I had with him over the years. He was always a thorn in my side. He smashed a cassette tape over my head because I, and then I, stuffed him in a locker, or maybe it was the other way around, I stuffed him in a locker so he smashed a cassette tape over my head, and then he smashed a entirely filled can of soda against my eye, and left a nice red ring around it. Anyway, I wasn't always the nicest character, so I drew a character, and I, made, I told him it resembled him, and this character had the buck teeth, the big nose, the glasses, because he wore glasses, and the big ears, and it didn't really resemble him, but I always would just get on his nerves and say, this is you. 
fast forward 20 years, I'm looking for a character. I want a character to, re to be the going postal publishing icon, the, the avatar for going postal publishing. So I drew about 20 different faces in a notebook, and that was one of the faces I drew. And I presented it to a couple of people, including my girlfriend. I said, of all of these, all of these heads, all of these drawings, which one do you prefer? Well, they all chose him. So I went with him. And I drew it, scanned it, put it in the computer, went through, made it everything darker, took out all the you know, pencil marks, and he became Going Postal Publishing's avatar, basically or emblem. It's whatever. And honestly, I couldn't be happier about it. I think that he I think that he is exactly what going postal publishing is all about. We're a little bit different here. We're a little bit odd. We're a little bit strange looking. And that is reflected. So now that I've rambled on for eight and a half minutes, let's get into chapter nine and ten of incarceration. Chapter 9. It was over. The case was over. And maybe even his career was over. Randy Thompson couldn't help thinking that the case had slipped out of his grasp. He'd been so confident that he would solve it. Then the bodies of the entire Norman family had disappeared from the morgue. It was as if they'd just gotten up and walked out, was how the IMPD had described it. If that was so, they walked out with the name of the killer as well. It was late, but that wasn't going to stop him from pursuing every possible angle he could. He was on the verge of running out of energy, but had his secret weapon against falling victim to his exhaustion. He lifted a pill bottle to his mouth, letting a couple of Benzedrine tablets enter his mouth. He swallowed them dry, knowing that the Bennies would soon give him the energy he needed to continue. He was on his way back to the scene of the crime. Maybe another walk around the Norman house would unveil some new clue that he'd missed earlier. No killer was perfect. Somebody had made a mistake and he was going to find it, even if he had to work around the clock until his body gave out from exhaustion. Nothing was more important than this case. Not his wife, not his daughter, not even the people that had helped him get to where he was today. To him, nothing mattered more than catching a man that had killed three people while he was in charge of protecting them. He failed, and subsequently, three people had died because of it. He was getting close to the scene of the crime. He turned onto Dewey Street, lost in his various thoughts. He wasn't really sure how this night was going to pan out, but he had to give it all the effort he could. He was approaching his final turn. Before he could reach his turn signal, he saw something out of the right corner of his eye, moving towards his car quickly. He slammed on the brakes, bringing the car to a screeching halt as a young man slammed into the front of his car with the palms of his hands. He stood in front of the right headlight with his hands on the car. It was a kid of maybe 17 or 18 years of age. Another look at his face brought the realization that he'd seen this kid before. He'd seen him this morning. He saw that very kid walking with the Paulson kid. He hadn't been able to remember his name earlier. Now, the same kid was looking right at him, and he was covered in blood. Randy put the car into park, killed the engine, and stepped out of the car. His hand instinctively moved to his revolver and the safety it provided. Something wasn't right, and he needed to be prepared. With the way that things were happening, 
He couldn't afford to take any chances. Help me, help me, the boy kept saying. He was panicking, pounding on the hood of his cruiser. Chief Thompson, please help me. My parents, they... Oh my God. Please calm down, Randy said. His eyes scanned the scene, looking for anything that he hadn't noticed before. Darkness. Only darkness. Darkness and something moving in the shadows. Was it an animal, or was it something else? He didn't have the time to concentrate on an animal running through the darkness. He had a panicking kid to deal with. I need you to tell me what's going on. He paused, staring at all the blood. There was so much of it. You mind telling me about the blood? The kid looked down at himself, looking as if he was seeing the blood for the first time. He grabbed his shirt, pulling it forward. Randy saw that the kid was carrying a pair of scissors in his right hand. He also saw that there was blood on the scissors. He pulled his gun from his holster and aimed it at the kid. You keep those hands where I can see them, Randy shouted, ready to pull the trigger if the kid moved. I want you to place those scissors onto the hood of my car and slowly back away. You better keep your hands where I can see them. You make one bad move, I'll shoot you. The kid looked extremely confused and frightened. One thing was obvious. Something had happened to put this kid into his current state. All that blood. Was somebody injured or dead? With how much blood there was, he had to think that it was likely. The kid slowly moved his hands down, shaking as he did. He placed the scissors against the hood of the car, then took two steps back. He placed his hands in the air, looking as if he were a surrendering soldier. Randy knew that something had happened to this kid. He was determined to know what that was. The investigation could wait until he was done questioning this boy. He was now even aware that this kid could have information for him, or was involved in his case somehow. What's your name? Randy asked, trying to remember what the kid's first name was. Jason Rangel. I want you to tell me exactly what happened, Randy said. His gun still pointed. He wasn't taking any chances. The kid looked at him for a moment, opening his mouth to speak. He closed it again, possibly having changed his mind about what he wanted to say. When he opened his mouth a second time, Randy's life changed forever. Somebody killed my parents, the kid said in a voice that was subdued and forced. Somebody killed my mom, then my dad. He tried to kill me, but I killed him, or... He paused. I thought I did. He got up and chased me. He looked directly into Randy's eyes. You have to help me. Randy's heart was beating faster than it should have. This sounded all too similar to something he'd just been thinking about. A family of three, brutally murdered. Well, one of them was standing before him, but that didn't change what was attempted. You tell me exactly what happened, Randy said. For the next three minutes, Jason Ringle told a story about what had happened to his parents and what had almost happened to him. Randy listened every word, hell, every syllable, but found the story to be highly strange. There was nothing in his story that Randy considered to be credible. First of all, he spoke as if the killer wasn't a man at all. Supposedly, the killer had large, inhuman teeth. Also, the killer had been stabbed in the chest and pushed down a flight of stairs, survived, and was seemingly indestructible. Randy went over his options. Something had to be done. As hard to believe as the story was, something happened in that house. 
something that left this kid covered with blood that was still wet. He decided that he better check it out. I want you to get in the back seat of my car, Randy told him. You'll be safe in there. Do you understand? The boy nodded. Randy opened the door. Please watch your head. Jason slid into the back of the car. Randy closed the door behind him, then moved back to the front of the car. He grabbed hold of the scissors by the handle, then brought them to the passenger side door. He opened the door and retrieved his seldom-used evidence kit. He opened the kit and pulled out a plastic bag. He placed the scissors inside the bag and sealed it. With the possible evidence secure, he walked back around the car and slid behind the steering wheel. He started the car and drove them to the house that Jason had pointed out. The house was dark and showed no sign of life. He turned around and said, I want you to stay right where you are. I'm locking the door so nobody can get in, and you can't get out. I'll be back in a couple of minutes. Jason nodded as if he were on cruise control and wasn't actually hearing the words. Randy stepped out of the car, locking it as he did. He left the young man behind, wondering how this night was going to end. He had to prepare himself for the possibility that this could all be some elaborate practical joke brought on by the Norman deaths. He half expected that after he rang the doorbell, somebody would open the door wearing their robe or pajamas. This was the part of the job that he hated and wished he could do something about. There was even a possibility that the kid was telling the truth about his parents being dead, but had confused the story in distress. Before last night, he would have said that was impossible. Now, he wasn't so sure. As he approached the house, something popped into his mind that made him think, more than ever, that this was a hoax. He realized that it had been April 1st for almost an hour now. April Fool's Day, Randy, he said to himself as he pressed his finger against the doorbell. He heard a buzzer from inside the house. It was loud and would be heard even if somebody were a heavy sleeper. Thirty seconds went by without so much as a sound from within the house. He rang the doorbell a second time, intending to enter the house if nobody came this time. Nobody did. He grabbed hold of the doorknob, thinking that it would be locked. It wasn't. He positioned the gun out in front of him as he opened the door and took his first step into the Wrangle household. He stopped after three steps. His eyes looked around the scene, knowing that something wasn't right. He'd been here before. At least, he'd been somewhere like this before. His momentary deja vu passed when he realized that this all looked so familiar to him. A set of stairs leading up to the second floor on his left, a living room in front of him with a kitchen and doorway leading to a laundry room or den further yet. This was the exact same floor plan as what the Normans had. Thoughts and emotions raced through his mind like a whirlwind. Things seemed to make some sense, while others seemed to make less. How could things be so similar? Three-person family same floor plan, and attacked at night. Three things that were exactly the same as the night before. He didn't need to be a rocket scientist to know that if there were bodies, he'd know exactly where to find them. He walked towards the stairs, pulling a small flashlight from a holster on his belt. He flipped it on with his thumb and scanned the floor in front of him. He needed to be able to see any evidence as soon as possible. What he found was a small amount of blood at the bottom of the stairs, soaking into the carpet. He stepped over the spots, making a mental note that he would need to collect a sample before this investigation would be complete. Fear gripped him tight, causing his progress to slow and his eyes to scan the scene more thoroughly. He was aware that if the kid was right, 
there was a possibility that the killer was in the house with him. He gripped the gun tightly, reminding himself that he had a great equalizer in his hand. He climbed the stairs slowly, listening to each and every creak. He prepared himself for what he would find at the end of the hall just up these steps. He took a deep breath as he climbed the final step, then avoided the small droplets of blood located on the carpet. He looked straight ahead to the open doorway at the end of the hall. He didn't need to examine any other rooms at this moment. He knew where he would find the bodies. If the killer were hiding in one of those rooms, well, he'd receive a bullet for his effort. This house was creaky. If the killer was still here, he wouldn't get very far before accidentally stepping on a creaky board. He kept walking, feeling his anxiety rise with every step. One of two things were going to happen. He was either going to find two dead bodies or two sleeping parents. He believed that he was going to find the first. There was far too much blood throughout the house to give him much doubt. The doorway at the end of the hall was like a portal into another dimension. It was so dark that the flashlight couldn't shine in. Well, there wasn't anything he could see in there from his current vantage point. He passed two different rooms, one on his left and one on his right. He didn't look inside either room. There was nobody in there. He could feel it. He kept walking, picking up the pace, until he was at the doorway. He reached inside for the light switch. He found it and flipped it. Nothing happened. He aimed his flashlight into the darkness of the bedroom and gasped. He suddenly realized that his case, the one that he had been certain was over just 15 minutes before, had been broken wide open. He saw the body of a man on the floor. He was surrounded in blood. He lied on his back, staring straight up with lifeless eyes. One hand was partially covering the area that had been torn open by the mysterious weapon. Shreds of skin were visible around his hand. He'd been killed the exact same way as the Normans. Randy moved the flashlight around the room, knowing exactly what he would find. It was in a different spot than the Norman house, but it would be here. There, on the opposite side of the room, stood the bed. He walked around the body, careful not to step in any blood or glass that he saw was from the overhead light. He shone his light on the bed, getting a good look at the woman who lied there. She stared up at him with a glassy stare. Her skin had gone as white as a ghost. There wasn't much blood surrounding her body. The hole where her throat had been ripped out had no blood in it, giving Randy a better look at the inner workings of her neck than he wanted to. He saw tendons, muscle, and a scraped spine. The murder weapon had scraped at her bones, just as he'd seen on Brian Normand. As ghastly as this image was, the puzzle continued piecing itself together in Randy's mind. This woman had been drained of her blood in the same manner as Carol Normand. The same man and the same weapon killed them. A thin smile spread on his face, but his happiness was short-lived. His heart jumped when a noise seized his attention. It was coming from outside the house. Somebody was screaming. Chapter 10 Jason Rangel sat in the back of the police car, patiently waiting for Chief Thompson to return. He couldn't figure out what was taking him so long. How long could it take for him to go in, see if his parents were alive, and come back out once he saw that he was telling the truth? He kept checking his watch, pressing the button on the side to display the time. Ten minutes had already passed. Where could he be? Jason tried the door. It was locked. He found a sense of relief in that. The car was covered in a blanket of darkness, 
He stared out the window, trying to see if the killer was out there. He couldn't tell. There was no moon out and no streetlight in the vicinity. He wanted his mother and father. His chest tightened with the realization that they weren't coming. His parents were dead. He looked down at himself and the blood that covered him. It was his father's blood. He grabbed hold of his shirt and quickly pulled it off. He tossed the shirt onto the floor on the opposite side of the vehicle, backing as far away from it as he could. He scrubbed his arms with his hands, trying to get as much blood off as possible. He looked at the shirt again, feeling as if it were still too close to him. He pushed himself back until the back of his head was pressed up against the window. He continued staring at the shirt, but his eyes kept moving to the windows. It was so dark outside. The man. Correction. The beast that killed his parents was out there somewhere. He felt as if it were watching him. His skin covered with goosebumps. He had never been as afraid as he was right then. That was until he realized that there was something behind him, just on the other side of the window. A low growl, similar to that of a wild animal, came from directly behind him. He didn't need to turn around to know that something wasn't right. He wanted to stand as still as he could, but found that he needed to turn around. He needed to show himself that this was all just a figment of an overactive imagination, brought on by the murder of his parents. He turned his head slowly, not fully knowing what to expect. Nothing. There was nothing in the window but more darkness. He let out a small chuckle, realizing just how foolish he'd been. He closed his eyes and laughed. When he opened his eyes again, he screamed as hard and loud as his lungs would allow. On the other side of the glass was the white-skinned face of the man that had killed his parents. Jason slid across the back seat, no longer worried about the bloody shirt. The killer stared in through the window with eyes that were blood-red. A small, dark pupil was the only change in the eye's color. His skin was white and pasty. His teeth protruded from underneath his closed lips, displaying sharp points that still dripped small amounts of blood. He used those teeth to kill my parents, he thought. The idea seemed both strange, yet factual to him. It was as if he could see exactly what had happened. The creature had used his teeth to rip through the flesh of his parents. Jason wondered where somebody went to get that kind of work done. He didn't think that there were any dentists that would perform that kind of operation. A single hand moved upwards, pressing palm first against the glass. The white-skinned hand had nails that were several inches long, and looked every bit as sharp as the monster's teeth. This monster was a walking machine of pain. It seemed that he had multiple ways of slicing Jason open. The killer breathed heavily, and Jason became aware that there were no breath marks forming on the window. It was strange how his mind would think of something like that while he was scared out of his mind. Yet here he was thinking about the killer's breath, or lack thereof. The hand slowly moved as he closed all his fingers into a fist except one finger. He left his index finger out and pressed it against the glass. Jason watched in horror as a thin line appeared in the glass. He was cutting through the glass using only his nail. The monster was coming for him. Jason stared into the eyes of the killer, the monster, seeing the hatred and insanity in his gaze. There was something about those eyes that was both intriguing and powerful. Jason's heart thudded so heavily that he thought he was going to pass out. The car, the killer, and the world all swayed to an unheard beat as his eyes became heavy, and the world seemed to no longer matter.
The killer's head turned to his left, looking back towards the house. Jason felt his heart slow, and the world returned to normal. He watched as a look of concern grew on the killer's face. He turned and looked at Jason. He opened his mouth to speak. Death will come for you, he said through the window. The voice was still snake-like, but seemed louder than it should have been, as if his mind was amplifying the words. The killer opened his mouth wide, hissing like a cat. Then, as quickly as he'd appeared, he disappeared back into the darkness, evaporating before his eyes. Jason put his head into his hands and cried. He cried for his parents. He cried because the killer had escaped. He cried because he was safe now. The police cruiser's door opened suddenly, startling Jason. Chief of Police Randy Thompson slid in behind the wheel. He closed the door and grabbed hold of the radio. He spoke into the radio, talking to whoever was on the other end of the line. When he was done, he returned the radio to its cradle, then turned to look at Jason with an expression of pure terror. His face had gone almost as white as the killer's. Jason could only guess as to what he had seen in there to make him look this way. He knew the answer. He'd seen his parents. Was it that bad? He couldn't imagine how bad it could have been, even though he knew how much blood had sprayed onto him. Randy looked confused. He moved upwards, looking into the back seat through a metal mesh that separated the front from the back. Who screamed? Thompson asked. What? Jason answered, wondering what the cop was talking about. It took a moment for his mind to grasp what the chief was saying. Had he screamed? Yes, he had. Me was the only word that he could say. What in the hell happened? Thompson asked, but received no answer. Jason couldn't find the words. After a moment, Randy moved on to his next question. And what happened to your shirt? Blood, Jason replied, finding that it was the only word that he could say without tears trying to take over his voice. Okay, the officer said. I'm going to need you to tell me again exactly what happened. From what I saw there, you have a lot of explaining to do. And we're back. How about that? The chief is talking to Jason and says, Lucy, you got some explaining to do. <laughs> okay, so it's been a little while since I've done my Desi Arnaz, so little bit rusty. Anyway, the chief is getting all up in Jason's grill and saying, Hey, what's up, man? What's up? What's going on with all the dead bodies? I see some bad things, man. Eh? So, I hope you enjoyed those two chapters. That's going to do it for this week. So, into the promo stuff. Amazon! Click on the banner on goingpostalpublishing.com for Amazon and buy whatever it is you're going to buy. Buy a video game. Buy my book. Buy something. Hey, if you want to buy an entire computer, they sell iMacs on there. There's iPads. They got the new iPads. So buy one of them. I get a few pennies for every dollar that you spend. And it'll all go into new and better equipment for the podcast, for the books, for everything. Go ahead and follow me on twitter.com slash goingpostalpub. Like me on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash goingpostalpublishing. YouTube, youtube.com slash user slash goingpostalpub. 
email me questions, comments, cheap shots, goingpostalpublishing at gmail.com. My voice is a little rough today, so I'm going to get out of here. I will be back next week for another episode of Incarceration, but you never know, you might hear from me before then. That's what they like to call a tease. So in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. You've been listening to the Going Postal Cast. For updates about Christopher Chapman, his stories, and future podcast happenings, be sure to go to goingpostalpublishing.com. If you want to follow along on Twitter, twitter.com slash goingpostalpub, or like him at facebook.com slash goingpostalpublishing. This podcast is copyright 2012, Going Postal Publishing. 